so it sort of led me down this rabbit hole of my own research, of one question after another. I found that the mind can not only heal the body, the mind can harm the body. That's Dr. Lissa Rankin, and this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I'm your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Friday. Super, super grateful for you being here and joining me today. And I hope that after listening to our two previous episodes this week, that you're as excited and intrigued about the brain and the mind as I am. But we're not done yet. Because we have one of my favorite doctors back on the show to talk about the influence our mind has on the health of our bodies, especially when it comes to chronic diseases, long-term diseases. And what I love in this clip is that she talks about the science and the proof behind it all. So sit back and enjoy this one with Dr. Lisa Rankin. Enjoy. And the question that kept coming into my mind was, can the mind really heal the body? You know, you hear about it, sort of this new age folklore. And I had read some books about mind-body medicine, and none of them seemed very well substantiated from a scientific perspective. Um, so I was curious. I was intrigued. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a nice idea. But, you know, again, my skeptical brain sort of thinking, that sounds like, at best, wishful thinking, and at worst, just good old-fashioned snake oil selling quackery. But then I started investigating further. You know, is there any evidence that the mind can heal the body? And, and that's when I realized that the medical establishment has been proving that the mind can heal the body for over 50 years. We call it the placebo effect, right? You guys have all heard of the placebo effect. It's this thing we kind of brush under the carpet in Western medicine. We know it's there. We know that in clinical trials, when you give people a sugar pill or a saline injection or most effectively a fake surgery, 18 to 80% of them get better. So they know they might be getting either the real treatment or, you know, or this fake treatment, but they don't know which they're getting and neither does their doctor. So on average, it's about 30 to 35% of people get better. And I certainly as a doctor, you know, I know about the placebo effect. It's it's out there, we're sort of taught about it, but nobody really explains it. What's happening when 30 to 35% of people get better from getting a sugar pill? So I started investigating the placebo effect. I thought, is it just in, the, in their minds? Are they just feeling better? But no, it's physiologically measurable. These people in these clinical trials, their bronchi are dilating. Their warts are disappearing. Their colons are becoming less inflamed. There's measurable physiological things that are happening. Bald guys getting sugar pills in the Rogaine studies actually grew hair. So it's not just in their minds. It's something physiological happening in the body. So it sort of led me down this rabbit hole of my own research, of one question after another. I found that 
the mind can not only heal the body, the mind can harm the body. So there's something called the nocebo effect, which is you know, the, the evil twin of the placebo effect. Those same clinical trials where 18 to 80% of people get better from taking a sugar pill, we also have to warn those people when they're in those studies that, of the side effects that they might get if they're getting a real drug, right? So we tell them, here's the side effects. Well, a, a, an equally high percentage of people actually get those side effects when they're not getting the drug. They're getting the sugar pill. So thinking that we might actually be at risk of these side effects actually makes people get these side effects. And there's much more dramatic instances of, of things like that. There's case studies all over the medical literature of people that were told that they were, were going to die in three months, for example, of a cancer diagnosis, and then they die almost exactly three months to the date, and on autopsy it turns out they don't have cancer. So there's all kinds of studies out there showing that when we have negative beliefs about our health, and many of us do, many of us are programmed with negative beliefs about our health from an early age. You know, we have those, oh, breast cancer runs in my family, therefore I'm at risk of breast cancer thoughts. Or we have, you know, I'm always going to be battling my weight because my parents have always battled their weight. Or even just something simple like, I can't heal myself. I'm dependent on doctors to heal me. So I actually, when I was doing this research, I have a seven-year-old, and at the time, I, my daughter was four, and I was reading all the data showing that basically our subconscious minds get programmed by the time we're about six, and that 90 to 95% of the time, we're operating from these beliefs of our subconscious mind that are often programmed into us by the time we're six. So I was noticing, you know, my husband, when my daughter would get injured or when she'd get a cold or something, you know, he'd start pretending he's an ambulance and he's going around going, woo we got to take Sienna to the kid factory. we got to get her a new knee, or we've got to get her a new throat, or, or whatever. And I told my husband, I was like, we got to stop doing that, because we're programming our child to think that the solution is at the kid factory, <laughs> that she needs to go, and that it's, it's outside of her, this ability to get well. So we started reprogramming, and we started telling her, you know what, we're going to put this Band-Aid on your knee so that you'll feel better while your body heals itself. And I'm going to give you this cough syrup so that you're going to feel a little better while your body heals itself from this cold. And now she's great. I mean, she's so programmed. So people talk about being sick, and she's like, it's OK. Your body knows how to heal itself. So I was reading about all of this, and I'm researching all of this. And I'm, I'm, I'm slowly getting kind of accustomed to the idea of like, oh, maybe the mind can heal the body. There's so much research, and it's all included in my book, Mind Over Medicine, Scientific Proof That You Can Heal Yourself. So I was chronicling all of this as I was going, but my skeptic brain really needed an explanation. What's happening here? How do we explain this? I needed a physiologic explanation. It's not magic. It can't be magic, right? So I started researching what, what explanations are out there of how the placebo effect works. And what I found is that researchers believe that some combination of the positive belief that they're going to get well. People are in this clinical trial. They're going to get the new wonder drug or the new fancy surgery or whatever. So, so they believe that they're getting the real treatment. And so they believe the real treatment's going to work. So it's that combination of positive belief. And, and then there's also this element of the nurturing care of somebody in a white coat saying, I believe this is going to help you. And we've put a lot of meaning in that. We've, we're conditioned to believe that if somebody in a white coat says this is going to help you, that it will. So researchers believe that that combination of positive belief and the nurturing care 
of a healthcare provider leads to changes in the brain that are translated into the physiology of the body through a whole cascade of hormonal changes. So let me explain this for you. I'm going to give you a little neuroanatomy lesson first. So there's this part of our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is in the limbic brain. So this is not your thinking, rational, logical forebrain. It's the ancient lizard part of your primordial brain. And the amygdala's primary job is to keep on the alert for danger. So have you guys seen those meerkats at the zoo, the little prairie dogs? There's, I love them. They're, they're, they're always sitting there, and there's always the, the meerkat sentry up on the mound, kind of looking around to make sure that there's not a tiger on the loose. And it's their job to signal to the whole community if something's coming, you know? So the amygdala, I, I like to think of as it, it's sort of like that meerkat, the, the sentry up on the mound. It's always trying to protect you. So it's always on the lookout for danger. And it, this is a good thing, right? Because if, the, if there's a tiger on the loose, then this is something that we need. Because what happens is if the amygdala sees that there's a tiger on the loose, all of a sudden the amygdala can communicate with the hypothalamus, which communicates with the pituitary gland that talks to the adrenal gland. And all of a sudden the adrenal gland is spitting out cortisol and epinephrine. So you're now in the middle of a fight or flight response, right? So Walter Cannon at Harvard called this the stress response. And it's, it's there to protect you. It's so that when you're in stress response and your life is in danger, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, you get blood flow to the large muscle groups so you can outrun the tiger. So this is here to protect you, right? But the problem is the amygdala is not smart. So it can't tell the difference between there's a tiger on the loose and you're about to get eaten, or nobody loves me, or my family has a history of breast cancer, and so I might get breast cancer. Or I hate my job. Or even something simple like somebody just spilled red wine on my white carpet. As far as your amygdala is concerned, all of those are equal threats. So whenever you have a thought like that, the amygdala starts this hormonal cascade, and the body is full of cortisol and epinephrine. Now, fortunately, there's, a, there's an equal and opposite reaction called the relaxation response, which is when the body is in the parasympathetic nervous system. So the fight or flight is the sympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is the homeostatic state of the nervous system. So in the relaxation response, all of those stress hormones go away and the body releases healing hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, nitric oxide, endorphins. These are all hormones that help the body heal. So here's the, the one thing. If, if you get only one thing from my talk today, this is what I want you to hear. The body is beautifully equipped with natural self-repair mechanisms. We know this. They teach us this in medical school. It's in our physiology textbooks. So we know that we all make cancer cells every day. We fight the cancer cells. Our body knows how to do that. You know, we're all exposed to infectious agents all the time. Right? But we fight the infectious agents. They don't make us sick most of the time. You know, the body, we have broken proteins. The body knows how to fix things like that. But here's what I didn't know until I started doing this research. The body's natural self-repair mechanisms only operate when the body is in relaxation response. So anytime your body's in stress response, those mechanisms are disabled. So that was a huge realization for me. Because we're only supposed to be in stress response, you know, in emergencies. I was just uh, driving to Munster, Indiana last week 
to go speak to a bunch of uh, a bunch of people at a cancer center, and all of a sudden, two tires on the left side of the car blew out, and the car literally almost tipped over. Just um, something in the road got into the tires, and all of a sudden, I noticed myself in that stress response, right? Because all of a sudden, I got to figure out how to, I'm going 65 on the highway. I got to get this car off safely to the shoulder, right? So this is good. My body's supposed to be in a stress response during that time. So I'm, I'm wrangling the car. I've got cortisol and epinephrine like coursing through my veins. I managed to get the car safely off to the side of the road. Now, if I were an animal, as soon as I'm safe, my amygdala would say, you're safe now. And that stress hormone would go down. You know, the stress re response would stop. Because those stress responses are only supposed to last about 90 seconds after the threat is gone. But what starts happening, right? My brain suddenly starts going like, oh no, I'm still far from where I'm speaking. And I suddenly now have two flat tires. I'm gonna miss my speech. I'm gonna disappoint the event planner. I can't even, what, where's my AAA card? It was, my wallet was stolen. I don't have my AAA card. This isn't even my car. I'm driving my best friend's car. These thoughts, right? We have these spiraling stress responses. And I was really aware in the moment of like, oh, this is how it happens, right? And this is how it happens for most of us. So on average, we have about 50 stress responses per day. And people who hate their jobs or they're in difficult relationships, they probably have more like 100. And every time we have a stress response, our body's natural self-healing capacities are disabled. They don't work. So this is how the placebo effect works. When we have that positive belief that, that we're getting the wonder drug, and when it's delivered to us by a nurturing healthcare provider, the amygdala is calmed down. So before, before the person comes into the clinical trial, they're usually nervous and scared, right? Their amygdala is firing. You've got an illness. Things aren't right. Things are at risk. You know, the Lemire cat's up there. But that combination of positive belief and the nurturing care of the right kind of healthcare provider can calm the amygdala down. And all of a sudden, the body's filled with those healing hormones, and voila, the body starts to heal itself, even though all you're getting is a sugar pill. So, you know, the next question that sort of was coming into my brain was well, we're not all in clinical trials, right? Should we all be going around popping sugar pills? Or is there some other way that we can do that, that we can have that same sort of placebo effect in a way that we can maybe control. So one of the things I was researching when I was looking at spontaneous remissions and patients who had had these kind of medical mysteries was, was were these all just flukes? You know, was stomatis moritis just lucky? Or is there something that these people were doing? Was there something proactive that they were doing? And I came across the research of Dr. Kelly Turner, who did her PhD thesis um, she studied at Harvard and UC Berkeley, and she did her thesis on people who had had spontaneous remissions from stage four cancers. And she was interviewing these patients as well as the often alternative healthcare providers that had facilitated their healing journeys. And she was trying to figure out, was there something in common? Could she learn something from these people about how to heal ourselves? And what she found is that there were six behaviors that these people had in common, and only two of them were the sort of things that a forward-thinking doctor might have prescribed. One of them was changing your diet to a more vegetable-based, often gluten-free sort of diet, and the other was taking some sort of supplement that the patient believed was really going to help strengthen their immune system, help fight off the cancer. The other four things 
and they're all listed in Mind Over Medicine. The other four things were all things that were happening here. They weren't medical treatments, per se. So that's when I started getting really curious, like, what could we do to flip on our body's natural self-repair mechanisms the way people in clinical trials have them flipped on when they're getting a placebo? So I, the whole second part of my book is about the research that I found showing that in order to be healthy, we need more than just a healthy diet, a healthy exercise regimen, you know, getting enough sleep, taking your vitamins, getting your pap smears or whatever, right? We need healthy relationships. We need healthy professional lives. We need a healthy spiritual life, a healthy creative life, a healthy sex life. We need a healthy relationship with our money. We need to live and work in healthy environments. We need to have healthy minds. Big thanks to Dr. Lissa Rankin for stopping by. Her website is lissarankin.com. Her Instagram is Lissa Rankin. And her newest book that I highly, highly, highly recommend that you pick up and that I have gifted to so many people is entitled Mind Over Medicine, Revised Edition, Scientific Proof That You Can Heal Yourself. And I'll have all the links in the show description so you can check that out. And when you get a chance, please follow the show on Spotify, podcast, share it, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. I really, really, really appreciate it. And that is a wrap for me. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and I will see you back here Monday. So until then, stay strong. Later.